They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. I am your host, Matt Brunig. My wife, Liz, is going to be absent for this one, so it is a solo Matt podcast. It will be tagged accordingly on the Patreon. Uh, We will have a normal episode out uh, later this weekend, I believe. Uh, The main reason I'm doing the podcast is because I got a new microphone, um, for m- many of you noted correctly on Patreon and Twitter and the Discord server and everywhere else that when we have guests on, the audio sounds like shit. Um, and it does sound like shit. And, and the reason for this is that it's very difficult to get a guest to consistently use the microphone. It was difficult at first to get Liz to consistently use the microphone because basically for you know, 30 minutes to an hour, you have to hold this big microphone like less than an inch from your face and it really can't move from it. And people find this very unnatural. It's uh, not not a way normal people have conversations. And so they pull the mic down and uh, it's a mess. So what I have done is I have bought a headset microphone on the uh, premise that, well, I'll just glue it, you know, just just shove it right on their head and uh, and then the microphone will be sticking right in front of their mouth, and there's there's nothing they can do to uh, to mess that up. So, testing this microphone right now. Uh, let me know what it sounds like. Um, I'll listen to it myself, but obviously, always interested in feedback. So this is mostly an excuse to mess with the headset, but you know, let's uh, let's do some interesting, hard hitting uh, uh, content as well. I think. Uh, that might be interesting to you guys. And so what I want to focus on today, which is going to bring us into a lot of different threads, is this tension that you see um, sort of boiling under the surface of all these different people who call themselves socialists, and sometimes even within an individual socialist, is this tension between someone having sort of individual control over their lives um, and, you know, what they do, Uh, individual power, if you will, Uh, freedom, individual freedom might be a way to put it, liberty, I don't know, Um, and collective control, the means of production, right? And socialists find themselves in this uh, somewhat of an oddball situation where um, they will simultaneously say that their system our system uh, gives you individual freedom, gives you the ability, you know, you, you get to do what you want. No, no more boss telling you what to do, right? 
We're done. We're done with the boss. To hell with the boss. You do what you want to do. We don't need the boss. The boss needs us, etc., etc. Right? That's a sort of line of reasoning you get. And it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, on, on, on its face, right? Because in a capitalist system, you have, uh, you know, the, all the businesses and the enterprises and the land and the means of production, capital, whatever you want to call it, you know, is owned by a small class of people at the top of society. And, you know, they have sort of uh, henchmen, devolutions of power from their ownership top management, middle management, lower management, and, you know, this sort of power trickles down, and then, and then the managers are, are telling you what to do, uh, uh, telling you how to live your life, telling you where you got to be, um, in, in some professions making you do dangerous things, uh, saying that you can't go to the bathroom and you have to wear a diaper, you know, real sicko shit. And so there's this impulse to say, well, you know, under socialism, the bo- you know, abolish the boss, abolish the capital or whatever, right? And now you can do what you want, right? But at the same time as we say this, we advocate this system where you're going to have collective ownership, right? Collective control of the means of production. And this can be done at a number of governance levels, right? You can have... Um, you could have state-owned enterprises where the government owns the enterprise. Think about the U.S. Postal Service, uh, Amtrak. You can have worker cooperatives. You can use, you can have sort of general government services like uh, the public schools, which are publicly owned, collectively owned, and, you know, employ actually a lot of people and provide a lot of services to people. You know, you have these sort of institutions and, 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 and maybe there's some other radical form of this uh, syndicalist or whatever. Um, but the basic gist is the enterprises are going to be collectively owned, collectively controlled, right? And so you run into this contradiction of sorts where we sort of simultaneously say... Um, <laughs> You are going to be your own boss. Uh, the boss is gone. But then we're also saying production decisions, decisions about how enterprises will work and that sort of thing, are going to be done collectively. Well, what if the collective makes a decision that you disagree with? What, what do you do then? Do you, do you, you know, how, <laughs> how do we proceed? What if uh, we have the public schools? They're all being... I mean, we already have this situation right now in the... And the public schools say, you know what, we're going to extend the school year an extra week. Can you just you just quit, or how does that work? You, I'm just I'm not I'm just not doing the extra week. Like if you're a teacher there, like like realistically, right? Collective control is not, you know, freedom from the boss. It's that the boss is now democratically controlled, right? Like the entity. The organizational entity of production is now subject to democratic constraints, right? So in the case of a public school, you know, we elect the school board members so we can kind of control it that way. And obviously, of course, teachers have unions and that sort of stuff, which gives them some input. Um, In the case of cooperatives, the worker co-op, the worker members, they get together, they elect the board of the co-op and the co-op board, uh, you know, hires a 
uh, a CEO and it goes from there. And if the working conditions start to degrade or get bad, you can always replace the CEO by replacing the co-op board or petitioning the co-op board, right? So it's, it's not so much that the uh, boss institutions sort of go away and you can do whatever you want. It's that those institutions are now subject to democratic or collective control. So this tension nonetheless remains because at times, for instance, I, I, I tend to lean into the collective control personally. I, I'm like, I'm fine with it. Look, yeah, let's have 300 million people go out and vote and we'll elect a government and the government will, you know, do things and determine how enterprise works and that sort of thing. And, you know, if, if you're not happy with it, you know, we have labor unions, we have other, uh, other mechanisms uh, to, to, to try to, you know, directly impact that, but also it's democratic, you know, you can go and elect new representatives and that's sort of the gist of it. But other people, when they hear this, they go, wait a minute, that's not socialism. How, how socialism is you get to control the workplace, not, you know, the government, not some sort of far-off institution where, you know, millions and millions of people vote and then there's some decision made. No, you control your workplace. That's the deal. And you, like, you see where they're coming from. Well, wait a minute. You've just replaced the capitalist boss with this collective boss, but it's still a boss and I want to do what I want to do, right? And, you know, like I said, <laughs> you get the impulse for this, but... Ultimately, that is, a, to my mind, just an anti-socialistic perspective, right? Because those individuals will sometimes try to round the, round the square or square the circle, whichever, whichever the <laughs> saying is, by saying, well, we'll just have like small enterprises and you'll, you'll have, the workers will control the, the, the job site that they are at. You know, so then then it'll be good. You know, so so we'll we'll avoid the problem where it's just like, hey, my vote's just like one. You know, I'm just sort of pissing into the ocean of votes, and it doesn't matter, and I feel like I don't have control, uh, even if you know theoretically it's democratic and we have millions and millions of people voting. I don't. It's just, mine's just one vote among them. I don't feel particularly empowered. Um, so I'm gonna make it smaller. But like that doesn't really solve the problem either, right? I mean. You could be in a super small business with just three people in it, but if two of them are of a different mind than you, you're basically being bossed around. You're still being bossed. It's just those two guys instead of, you know, the capitalist class or whatever, right? Now, I would say, again, from my perspective, no, look, you have a chance to, you know, persuade them. You have a vote, you know, like... I, I, I lean into the democratic aspect of it, for, but for the people who, you know, tend towards that level and be like, no, my socialism is going to be super individualistic, I, you know, I just don't see it. I don't see how it works, right? Collective control doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sort of do whatever you want to do while you're in the work site. The work site's still going to be regulated by these institutions. It's just that those institutions are going to be democratically controlled as opposed to being controlled by a small class of people at the top of society, right? Now, what I think is interesting about this divide is it actually maps onto another divide um, that you see in other contexts. So in this sort of 
Catholic economic world, if you will, you have this um, thing called distributism. And distributism, I don't know that it's like, I don't know that it's a live thing that you have like a whole lot of people who are sort of like interested in pursuing it. But distributism, which is very similar, I would say, conceptually to Jeffersonianism, which is also very conceptually similar to Rawls's property-owning democracy. Well, broadly speaking, the idea is rather than bringing capital under collective democratic control, what we are going to do is we are going to keep it privately owned, but it'll be parceled out to every individual, right? So you will own your little bit of capital and you will use that to produce, you know? So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, this, this only really works, frankly, in an agrarian context. I, I hate to spoil the, you know, spoil the ending here, but you can conceptualize this. And I think uh, Chesterfield uh, used this phrase uh, as being uh, th three acres and a cow. Every person gets three acres and a cow, right? And Jefferson was really into the yeoman farmer. Uh, Rawls, uh, I don't, I don't frankly think he even believes in property owning democracy, but he doesn't, I would say, go too much into the details of, of this. But the basic idea is, uh, why don't we just have a nation of sole proprietors, right? Why don't I just, I'll, I'll, I'll tend my farm and, you know, when the vegetables come up, I'll eat them, I'll feed, feed myself, and maybe I'll sell a little bit out into the market. But for the most part, I'm just kind of, I'm tending my farm, I'm tending my land. I have my little set of resources, my piece of land. Maybe there's some woods on my land. I can get some wood, you know. I, I control my means of production, and you control your means of production. And every little person is their own, you know, they, they control their own means of production. And what's interesting about this is, in some sense, you know, you can kind of see it as, as being like uh, little socialist units, right? Because what, what has distributism or Jeffersonianism or, again, property-owning democracy, what, what have they really done? What they've done is they have liquidated the capitalist class, right? Because rather than us all going to work for a small class of people that owns everything, we all work for ourselves. They haven't gotten rid of the market. They haven't gotten rid of private ownership. It's not a system of democratic collective control of the means of production. It's just everyone has their own little bit of capital. They mix it with their own little bit of labor, and they produce what they produce. You are your own boss. We're all, we're all our own bosses. And that, I think, when you have the socialist that... <laughs> perhaps unknowingly in many cases, push back against these large collectivist institutions, whether they're state-owned enterprises or even big worker co-ops or social wealth funds like I advocate. I always just sit there and I just think to myself like, dude, like you're just, you're a, <laughs> you're a Jeffersonian. Like you're not a socialist. <laughs> like if what you're worried about is I want to individually have the power, I don't want a boss to tell me what to do. Collective control is not going to get you that, right? Not by itself. We'll get into sort of how I uh, manage this uh, a little bit later. But collective control is not going to get that for you, right? What you need is this system where each individual is kind of a little productive unit, unit on 
onto themselves that owns a little bit of capital, has a little bit of labor. The family farm is Jefferson's example. It's also Chesterfield's example. You could imagine other small things, you know, the blacksmith, you know, he might own his little shop and some tools and whatever. Uh, the candlestick maker, you know, is going to own uh, his little uh, tidbit, you know, like, you know, a little, you know, the butcher, yeah, the baker, yeah. Uh, you know, they'll all own their little bitty shops and, and, and they won't have bosses and they'll be able to control, um, you know, what they're doing. And that, I think, is really if you're of that kind of localist bent and you, and, you, and you look at it and you go, wait a minute, collective control doesn't get rid of the boss. Or if you're the kind of person, this is, I would say, one of the most irritating kind of people um, in the world who, when you look at a state-owned enterprise and you go, uh, that's not socialism. That's state capitalism. You realistically, <laughs> you are uh, you are a Jeffersonian. You're not a you're not a socialist in the ordinary sense of of the word, right? Because you could say that about any enterprise. You could say because uh, what they're getting at is they're like, oh, you've just replaced the capitalist, the private capitalist, with the state. That's not socialism. And it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, the private capitalists like has certain functions that they perform in our society. They allocate capital, they um, sort of control production and that sort of thing. The idea of swapping them out with a democratically elected state is now through the state, which we democratically elect, we now collectively, democratically perform those functions, which is what we're after, right? You could just as well, I mean, you, you you could use that line on anything, right? Oh, well, I have a worker co-op. It's like, okay, so what do you do in the worker co-op? Well, we elect a co-op board. And then the co-op board makes decision. I actually live in a housing co-op that works just like this, right? And they say, oh, well, the worker co-op board, so there's a, there's a small group of representatives who make sort of decisions. They have board meetings. They pass bylaws and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, sounds like uh, you've just replaced the capitalist with the co-op board. That's not socialism, that's co-op capitalism, right? Every institution that does the controlling, even if that institution is democratically elected, whatever, you can just be like, mm, that's just capitalism, but with a new capitalist. Because like, yes, in a socialist society, you're still going to have to allocate capital, you're still going to have to do those sorts of things. And the collectivist institution that does it, you could, if you want, call it a capitalist because it has supplanted the capitalist and taken over its role. But like, the way socialists see it is not that you're going to eliminate the allocation of capital. It's just that that allocation is going to be done through democratic institutions um, rather than by a small class of people at the top of society. But not to go on a tangent here, if, if you look at those kinds of institutions and you're like, that's not satisfying to me because it's still going to be the case that like someone's going to make a schedule and there's going to be a boss, and, uh, then you're a Jeffersonian. <laughs> you are uh, perhaps a distributist, you know, um, that, that's what you are. And what you want to do if you want to have individual freedom is not create a system of collective ownership, but create a system of, you know, individual freedom in this way. Like I said, I'll get to it in a second. You want to create a system that's not collective ownership, but private ownership that is thoroughly spread out where each person owns their own enterprise, right? Now, why wouldn't you want that kind of system, right? Because uh, as I've laid it out now, that's the freedom system, and who doesn't love freedom? So why, why, why would I favor unfreedom over freedom? And the answer is that 
you can't produce shit that way. <laughs> like, there's a reason why Jeffersonianism is an agrarian philosophy, just as there's a reason distributism is an agrarian philosophy. It is possible if you're the kind of society that has not developed, you know, manufacturing technology and that sort of thing for each person to just kind of have a plot of land and be a subsistence farmer. And that, that kind of life, frankly, you know, ticks off a lot of the socialist boxes. You know, you, you don't have a private capitalist class who everyone works for. There's no real wage labor. You're a subsistence farmer, right? You're not working for money. Uh, there is a little bit of a, of a market for surplus goods and that sort of thing, but it's, it's relatively small. Um, you have sort of total decommodification, no wage labor, no real capitalist class to speak of. Like, uh, you know, you see how you get sort of distributism saying, look, we're neither socialist nor capitalist, but we satisfy, you know, all these, we tick off all these boxes. You see why, you know, uh, people kind of stumble into this. But the problem is that, you know, enterprises just don't work this way. Like if you want to create, you want to efficiently produce um, cars, you you can't have like, Oh well, I, I'm just the I'm like a sole proprietor who makes cars, like that's not <laughs> that's not that's not a thing you can do. You need like big big ass factories and you know an assembly line. Like if you want to do it in any kind of efficient way where you can produce a lot of them and actually you know make cars for everybody, it's it can't be produced like that, right? So the demands of sort of efficient production make it so that. That's just not a way to live, where everyone's a sole proprietor. It's just not possible. This is why, in some ways, I find the application of sort of Jeffersonianism to the modern day, which some people do, kind of baffling. <laughs> like, there's no, you can't, you can create a few more small business owners, I guess. But, like, for the most part, production, any kind of efficient production is going to take place within fairly large, you know, groups of people and firms. You know, that's just, that's just the nature of of the bees. Now, if you are okay with having very little production, then you could go that way. And this is how sometimes you get into kind of primitivist strands of socialism, where they say, look, yes, I agree that we're not going to be able to produce a whole lot uh, by following all of these rules, making it to where you have no boss, uh, there's no capital, there's no property, there's, a, there's no real system set up for allocating things. Yes, I realize that that only really describes kind of hunting and gathering and primitive agriculture, um, and I'm okay with that. And, you know, that's just not me. I'm not, I'm not going to live like, I'm not going to live like that. <laughs> I'm just not going to do that, personally. Um, but there are people who go that route. So maybe you are. Maybe you're like, yeah, I'm okay with the GDP being, you know, three percent of what it currently is i'm a, i can live you know really really badly um and as long as there's no boss i'll you know that'll outweigh that but for most people i don't think i don't think you're gonna you're gonna see something like that um so how do we deal with this then right uh, well uh you know we want to promote individual freedom, but collective control, it just kind of, it doesn't really give you individual freedom because there's still the collective that might make decisions you disagree with. And what about decommodification, right? That's another thing. I also don't want people working for wages, right? Uh, distributism and, and to some degree property owning democracy and Jeffersonianism solves that. 
right? There's not as much commodification because, you know, you're not working for a boss, so there's no wage labor, so your labor's not being commodified. To be clear, commodification is, you know, turning things into commodity. Basically means selling stuff, right? Like, so you're, you, you know, when you, when you get wages, that's commodified labor because someone is paying for it like it's a commodity. If you go buy something at the store, you're buying a commodity, right? And, and, and you know, almost everything that we sort of interact with in the economy is, is priced and therefore commodified. But, you know, some people grow gardens and that stuff's not commodified. So, but, but anyways, that, that's another feature potentially of this sort of um, property-owning democracy slash distributism slash Jeffersonianism is that th there's no commodification because there's no boss. There's no complex sort of economic structure. Everyone owns their own little plot of capital, their own little bit of labor, and they produce what they consume. And maybe they sell some of it out into a market. And so in that sense, the stuff they produce is commodified, but their labor is not commodified. So, you know, it's better. So, yeah, so, so what do you do about this, right? <clears throat> and because I do agree, even though I tend to favor the collective control approach, I do agree that there is a point to be made that we don't want, like, at the end of the day, if you don't agree with the way the collective wants to organize production, you're not in that much of a freer position than if you don't agree with what the capitalist class, how they want to organize production, right? Just swapping out a sort of democratic entity with an undemocratic entity does not ensure that the democratic entity will make decisions you agree with. They might make decisions about production that you don't agree with, that you don't like, that are onerous on you. Um, they might wor demand longer work days than you want. They might demand worse conditions than you want, et cetera, et cetera, right? So how do you deal with that, right? If you're not willing to go full-blown, nope, everyone is their own little sole proprietor, we're going to be a nation of, of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, um, how, how do you deal with that? And my answer to this question is work reduction, right? And I've said it before in this podcast, someone pointed out to me, said I should put it on a mug, that every hour you're not working is an hour of freedom, right? A lot of what I do in my sort of policy work when I'm doing explicit socialist type policy, which is not, you know, everything I do, is to try to find gradual paths to achieve certain kinds of things, right? So I have the social wealth fund idea where we're going to gradually um, move wealth out of the private capitalist class and into a social wealth fund that is governed democratically that we all receive an equal benefit from, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that sort of approach there. And you can see it, every dollar of assets, we can move it dollar by dollar by dollar, right? So it's a gradual path. It doesn't require a one-off kind of snap type situation. Um, but when it comes to things like decommodification, that is to say reducing the amount of time you spend, or just reducing the degree to which what you do is commodified and, and, and turned into something you know, for profit, for sale, for whatever, um, or increasing individual freedom, 
it is, I think, for a lot of people, harder to see how you can do that gradually, right? Like decommodification is a good example of this, right? Decommodification is going to require, some people say decommodification is the center of socialism. I completely disagree. I think social ownership of the means of production is the center of it. Decommodification is a side thing that some people are interested, some people aren't, whatever. But put that aside. If you're trying to achieve decommodification in a gradualist path, on its face, it seems a little difficult to do that because what it would mean to decommodify would mean that people are going to do work without being paid for it, right? They would still be able to like, you know, in a, in a final state, that doesn't mean like they won't be able to have housing and that sort of thing. It's just that there wouldn't be money exchanged for these things. You would just sort of go to work, produce things, and then also consume things separately. And there would be no money, you, like you wouldn't make money and then go spend it. It would, it would all be decommodified. So there's just sort of production and consumption with no tallying of what you've done when you get some sort of money. And No, um, that would sort of be the general idea. But how can you approach that gradually? Right? Like you can't go into like, well, we, we control the public schools. Why don't we just say, hey, Teacher labor is now decommodified and just don't pay wages to teachers. Well, <laughs> that's not going to work. How are they going to pay their rent? How they like, they need the money? Like the rest of the unless the rest of the system also allows them to consume without money, which it's not going to if you're doing it in a gradualist path, then decommodifying their labor is not going to work. Um, if it would ever work, I don't even know. But you see what I'm saying? You can't you can't go about like <laughs> snuffing out wage labor in certain sectors of the economy because the people need wages in order to buy stuff in the rest of the economy, right? So it, it seems on space like it's going to have to be an all at once sort of thing. And, you know, in general, I think you should be a little bit skeptical about you know being able to eliminate uh, that sort of thing all at once um, in a way that's not going to create serious uh, uh, disaster, um, famines, and just complete chaos. So how do you achieve it in a gradual way? And my answer to this question is work reduction, right? If we work 2,000 hours a year, if we cut that down to 1,500 hours a year, it seems to me that 500 hours a year have been decommodified. If we cut it down to 1,200 hours a year, it seems to me that 800 hours a year have been decommodified. Right. So through work reduction, we can gradually decommodify people's lives. Um, and I don't know that you ever get to zero. I mean, presumably, the closer you get to zero, the easier it might be to make that snap transition or whatever. But if you can plow productivity gains into work reduction, you really are using productivity gains to gradually decommodify people's lives. The, 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 the time of their life is being decommodified. And so if you believe something like that, which I think is eminently reasonable and makes for a very easy uh, path for, you know, policy planning and that sort of thing, then I think you can arrive at a, at a somewhat of a nice position where you say, look, the means of production should be collectively owned and collectively controlled, and that means that we should make collective decisions about how things are produced and organized, which means if you are on the minority side 
of that collective decision, you are going to have to, to some degree, get with the program, right? Show up to work at the time that we have established for people to show up to work and that sort of thing. Follow the work rules, even though you would prefer different work rules. You can still always campaign for changing them and, you know, work politically to try to get the votes to change them. But for the time being, yes, it's a collective project, so you got to get on board. But we will also commit to cutting the amount of time people have to work. Right? So the amount of time that you are governed by these collective rules, these collective work, work rules, will shrink year over year over year. And so, you know, you don't have to be as burdened by them. You really are having parts of your life, more and more of your life, being set off towards individual freedom, um, which is a good thing, I think. And so here's an interesting thing that springs out of this, right? And that is, if you believe, as I do, that work reduction is decommodification and that it's a, like, you know, the best gradual path to decommodification, then that also raises interesting questions, these age-old questions <laughs> about the Nordic societies. Because, you know, there are a lot of people, and I think, um, who they don't like my position on the Nordic societies, which is that they are much more socialist than, than people realize in America. Not to say they're fully socialist, whatever that would mean, but that they are much more socialized than people realize. And they certainly have historically been much more socialized than people give them credit for. Um, and my argument for that usually focuses on public ownership, right? This is something that is just completely out off the radar. No one even talks about how much Nordic countries own wealth publicly. They just don't talk about it. Um, it took me a long time to even be able to find data on it. Uh, it's just not a thing that people um, bring up. And so they just think, oh, well, there's a welfare state and that's that. It's like, that's not true. You know, Norway owns 60% of the country's wealth. Finland owns something like 30% of the country's wealth. Sweden in mid-century uh, got up to right about 50% of the wealth was publicly owned. And that's before the minor plan even came in. After the minor plan, it ticked up a little bit, but 50% ne but nearly of the, of, the, of, the, of the national wealth of Sweden was publicly owned. Um, and no one gives them credit for this. And that's usually what I tend to focus on. And I think that's probably the best focus. And, you know, I don't see people grapple with it. I actually, I actually had an email exchange with uh, Lane Kinworthy, who is one of the preeminent you know, philo uh, uh, I don't know, I guess he's technically a sociologist, but he does a lot of statistical stuff with Nordic countries and social democratic countries and cross-country cross comparisons in general. He writes all these books. I think he wrote a book called Social Democratic America where he lays out his platform and so on. He's very, very Nordic involved. And he sent me a copy of his last book. Uh, I guess he knows who I am and we chat a little bit by email. And, you know, I, I looked, oh, you know, it's the usual stuff, good stuff from Lane. I like Lane. Um, and I was like, hey, man, I, <laughs> why do none of your books ever mention the high levels of state ownership in these countries? And he was, and I was like, do you just think it doesn't matter? Or you think, you know, these stats that I've, that I've sort of produced, you don't think these are right? Because I know he reads this stuff. And he just said, um, yes, I think it doesn't matter. Um, that they own all this wealth publicly, um, but I, 
uh, I think you should keep writing about it. <laughs> so a little bit cryptic. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how to read that exactly. Um, but anyways, to get back on track, normally I focus on the fact that you know they own a lot more wealth publicly than people realize. And if you know socialism is collective ownership of the means of production, well, they have very credible democratic governance that own and you know administer a large portion of the national wealth. You know, I mean, it could be better, but like this, this you know they're on the path much further along the path than we have ever been but separate from that what about decommodification now that would be the usual sort of retort or another usual retort someone might make is they would say well okay sure they own a lot of stuff you know they own they own a lot of these utilities they have you know a rather large number of state-owned enterprises they have these funds you know solidium and finland you know, you've got all this stuff, sure. But at the end of the day, workers, they're engaged in wage labor. They go off to work. They work in these firms, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that's true. But if you believe in that work reduction is decommodification, <laughs> and maybe this is too cute of a troll argument, they have also reduced the amount of work that they do tremendously, Work, work lives in these countries are way, um, way less intense than than we have in the United in the United States. Um, let me see if I can uh, if I can quickly uh, uh, pull up how much they work um, on it. Um, oh, here we go. I wrote a piece actually at People's Policy Project on May thirty first, two thousand eighteen titled Work Levels in the U.S. and Nordic Countries. And what's the, uh, what's the, the, what's the payoff here? The payoff here is, let's look at uh, Denmark and Norway. Denmark and Norway work f about 1,400 hours a year per worker. The United States is 1,700. Um, so getting down to Danish and Norwegian levels of work would be like giving American workers 2.2 additional months of vacation each year. Um, so that sounds nice. What if you had two extra months of vacation each year? Wouldn't, that seems like it would be swell. Uh, and hey, when you're on vacation, you're not working. You're not doing wage labor. Your time is not commodified. Seems to me... You live in the socialist dream in that moment. Now, of course, they still are working 1,400 commodified hours uh, a year, which is not ideal. But, you know, those, those numbers could also conceivably go down. Um, of course, they're facing uh, aging population issues, so they might, they might in fact go up. But that's the gist, right? Um, so, you know, to kind of sort of bring it all back, I think you can use this decommodification argument to firstly say, look, we can have collective ownership of the means of production while also working to decommodify because work hour reduction is decommodification. It is a gradual reformist way to decommodify people's lives. It's just to reduce the amount of work that they do, uh, waged work. When you're not working, you can also volunteer. You can do stuff that's unwaged. That is work. Um, but let's just reduce that, right? It allows you to say that on a sort of um, abstract level, uh, you know, 
how, how are you achieving collective control and decommodification at the same time while you're also preserving a market socialist system and so on? And you go, look, I achieve this all. I have collective control through state-owned enterprises, social wealth funds, general government, worker cooperatives, and I have decommodification through work reduction. Every hour you don't work is a decommodified hour. It allows you to say that on the abstract level and also allows you to lean into being like, in fact, uh, the Nordic countries are more socialist than the U.S. are. Not only because they have these large welfare states, which may or may not be socialist, depending on how, you know, you count welfare states. Um, not only do they have that, not only do they have large high levels of state ownership of wealth, which is collective ownership of the means of production through democratically legitimate entities, but they also have much less work, which means they have much more decommodified hours. Boom. <laughs> you know? And of course, you'll never you know, convince someone that they are full-blown socialists. But of course, my position on this has never been that they're full-blown socialists, whatever that might mean. I've always said that we need to go beyond where the Nordics are. But I've also tried to emphasize that you know, it's really not useful to try to set up socialism as this binary concept that like you click into it and boom, now it's socialist. And then like if uh, you know a little girl sets up a lemonade stand, ah, damn, it's capitalist again. We gotta you know crush that stand. I don't think that's a useful <laughs> way to look at it. Instead, I think you can and you must describe it in a kind of um, spectrum type way where we say, well, this is a more socialist country. It has greater levels of collective ownership of the means of production. It has more decommodified time, meaning work reduction. Um, it has more worker control through unions and co-determination. Like it, 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 it is further down the spectrum on the quantities that matter to socialism which are collective control, which are decommodification, and, and which are sort of worker control and worker power and so on. It's, it's further down those spectrums, way further down than, than where we are. Not as far down as I, as I would like, but, but further down there. And so, you know, I'm going to keep pressing that argument um, see, to see where it goes. One other thing I'll note about this, <laughs> only because I'm reminded of it, having just reread this piece that I wrote, um, there are people in the United States who, um, well, let's just let's just call them call them who they are the the job guarantee people who weirdly like to tie their jobs program, which I've described as just kind of workfare for unemployed people, not particularly productive, but whatever. They some of them um, have these much more grandiose notions of what the job guarantee can achieve. And so they'll slip into this rhetoric where they're like, look, the reason we can't have nice things, the reason why we lack all this production in the United States is because we have all these unemployed people and, and they're an untapped gold mine. And if we had them and we brought them into the workforce, into the job guarantee program, then we could really start producing the stuff we need. We could get the child care. We could get the social care. We could get, right, they sort of list all these, uh, you know, all this kind of work that is not being performed um, currently. And <laughs> I always look at this stuff and I'm like, these countries work way fewer hours than we do right? Even on like a per capita basis. And yet they manage to p 
perform all that work, right? They manage to provide child care to everyone, to provide education to everyone, to provide social care to everyone. I know in some cases the some of those services have been privatized and the quality has has degraded, but but they they don't suffer from lack of of work hours to perform those things. So like, you know, the idea that we need to amp up the amount of, of, of labor hours being poured into the system to provide for these basic, uh, you know, welfare needs is uh, it's just fucking insane <laughs> and, not, and not, not good rhetorically either, I wouldn't say. Um, but yeah, so I think that's basically the gist of it. What else do I have here? You know, I think, yeah, that's pretty much it, you know. Um, People who want to tell you that big collectivist institutions like the state, if it's democratically elected, that, that, that that's not socialism, that that's just replacing one boss with another, that's just state capitalism or whatever. I, I, you know, like I said, I think they're basically just Jeffersonians in disguise who really need to get onto the, onto the distributism train and, and you know, uh, advocate for a society in which everyone sort of owns their own little small business. Um, and that, incidentally, is not a, you know, completely fringe position in the United States anymore. I mean, you don't have anyone taking it quite to that extreme, but certainly uh, folks at, like, the Open Markets Institute and the, the people who are real into antitrust, there are a number of people who sort of are of that ideological persuasion very much into like uh, you know let's just make really small businesses and then that that'll be freedom and i think that they actually you know reflect where those kinds of socialists want to be but don't realize that that's where they want to be don't let people say that's not socialism just because the collective institution is very large and if you dissent from it you can't just sort of anarchistically uh, you know decide whatever you want to do in any given workplace and separately, um, when people want to say, well, then that's not freedom and I don't like it and you have no way of decommodifying, just say, I do, because I have work reduction. Work reduction decommodifies. Work reduction gives you individual freedom, even from the collective uh, socialist institutions. So that's what I would do. Try to collectivize uh, ownership of the means of production as much as possible. Try to spread out the benefits of the capital factors as much as possible. That's why my social wealth fund has a dividend that pays out equally to everyone. Um, and try to reduce work as much as possible. Those are the, those are the two instruments um, for us to gradually work towards the, uh, the socialist utopia. Um, anyways, that's just my view. If you disagree, you're probably wrong, but feel free to chime in uh, in the comments, in the Discord server, wherever, and uh, we can chat about it. Bye-bye.